Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is Bob Emmer, a homegrown California boy with more than 30 years of entertainment industry experience. He started out as a graduate of UCLA and Loyola Law School. From there, he went on to become Director of Business Affairs for MGMUA Home Video and Senior Vice President at Alive Enterprises. In addition to being creator and executive producer of the late-night music show Rock and Roll Tonight, Bob's early career included developing many music talents, including Teddy Pendergrass, Blondie, and Alice Cooper. He served as executive vice president at Rhino Entertainment for 12 years, where he oversaw business affairs, deal execution, and product oversight for Rhino's record, video, and film divisions. When they were acquired by Warner Music Group, Bob was recruited to serve as senior VP of business affairs for their record labels that include Elektra, Warner Brothers, Atlantic, and Rhino Entertainment. Currently, he is the co-CEO of Shout Factory, a diverse media company devoted to producing, uncovering, preserving, and revitalizing the very best of pop culture specializing in cult classic horror and sci-fi films and classic TV series. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with media man Bob Emmer. I find it fascinating. Three of, honestly, my favorite acts were acts that you were instrumental in sort of bringing to life. Alice Cooper, Blondie, and Teddy Prendergast. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's I, pretty I would eclectic. Never, I would never use the word bringing to life. I, I was very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with Shep Gordon. And mm-hmm. for anybody out there that has not seen mm. the documentary Supermensch that was done by Mike Myers, I highly recommend that you see it. We crossed paths and I went to work with Shep. And Shep had become my mentor back then. And to this day, I still converse with him all the time. I still make my annual pilgrimage to Maui where he has his primary residence every Christmas to New Year's. I think this year will be the 34th year in a row that my whole family goes over and we hang out. So he was the manager, okay? There was just a group of us. It was a management company. Uh, it's, it, it was a great thrill for me because I don't play an instrument. And I've tried. But I always had this passion for music. <laughs> so I figured, okay, and I have a lousy voice. You don't want to ask me to <laughs> you sure? So to me, the alternative was how could I be of service and still be involved in this business? And that was, you know, maybe I can get involved in the business side, the management side, the business side from a label, whatever way. And, that, and that's what I chose to do. And Shep was very instrumental in that. Being fortunate enough to work with three of the acts that you mentioned – Plus a bunch of others that were great, you know, whether it's Luther Vandross or, or uh, Rick James, all were unique and interesting experiences. How long did you work tonight. with Shep? I was with Shep, I'm going to guess, six and a half, seven years. My life has been a series of just, I don't know, cosmic events happening, you know, and like, why did I say that? And look what happened now. And it was just a great experience, including the day that he fired me, which was very traumatic for me for a moment until he told me why. 
and it and? was fine. Can you share it, that? Yeah, it, we had a TV show on uh, NBC late night called Rock and Roll Tonight that Shep, Neil Marshall, and myself created. We sold to NBC. It was on late night. Listeners out there, I suggest you go and uh, YouTube, Google it, and look up Rock and Roll Tonight and see some of the great performances that we had. It was a show that was diametrically opposed to what was going on with MTV. We didn't believe, and I still don't like, the idea that you create a video that defines a song. Because I think once you see a video, that song is defined for you. It's hard for you to have your own thought. And maybe that's part of the process. You know, we're going to control everything you think. To me, music was all about, I hear this song and I visualize it meaning this to me. And if I asked Rebecca or either one of you what it meant, you could have a totally different story. It was personal. This show was only acts coming on and performing music live, no video, nothing. And when it got canceled, I reported back to the production office, which I was the uh, onboard uh, Alive Enterprises person at. And we came and I didn't get my check. It was okay, you know. Mistakes happen. Second week, I didn't get my check. Mm. I said, well, I better make a phone call. So I called Shep. He said, oh, I forgot to tell you, you're fired. I said, excuse me? I said, I got a family. Don't I get like a little warning? He goes, no, this is good for you. I said, explain how it's good for me. He said, it's time for you. You've, you've, you've earned your stripes. You need to get out in the world and prove who you are as opposed to always being the guy that works with or for Chef. And that was the beginning. And he then added, if you need some money, I'm happy to lend it to you to get through. And if you can pay me back, you'll pay me back. And Shep, if you're listening, I did pay you back. Please remember that. <laughs> and then he said, oh, and by I the way, this story. there's an opening at MGM. They're looking for somebody to music supervise the soundtrack to a movie coming out called That's Dancing that David Niven Jr. and Jack Haley Jr. are doing. I've set it up. You have an interview on Monday. If you don't screw it up, you'll get the gig and you'll make more money doing that than I've paid you in the last year and a half, I believe. And he was right and wrong. Yes, I got the job. And it probably paid me more than I made the last two years with him. So <laughs> it all worked out. And, and that's, that's what it was about. And wow. that's how I got out of, out of working with Shep and just utilizing or, or, or knowing Shep as a met, pure mentor and not as a, a colleague working. And Share what you're us. doing now. We got to go a little back to yeah. get where we are. Okay. Back about 16 years ago, we sold a company that I was the third partner in. Uh, there were two founding partners. The company was Rhino Records. The founding partners were Richard Foose and Harold Bronson. I was the third partner, the junior partner, if you will. Uh, we built that company up. We created an interesting business model that we we pitched and sold into Atlantic Records and the Warner Music Group. It worked out very well. They eventually bought the company. And I stayed on as head of business affairs at the corporate level, the Warner Music Group level, with one of the best bosses, quote unquote, I've ever had with Bob Daly and Terry Semmel at the Warner Music Group. Richard stayed on as president of Rhino. But when when there was a change in the leadership at the Warner Music Group and Daly left the company, as did Semmel, and they brought in somebody else, it was a decision I had to make with whether I would go to New York and continue and work out on my contract or would I just say no because I didn't have to go under my agreement. And that's what I did. I wasn't going to leave L.A. So they worked out a, a deal. Richard had expressed to me his desire that he didn't want to continue at Rhino under this regime and 
just the way it was. We're entrepreneurs. We're not employees per se. Richard and I agreed that once his agreement was up, we'd start a new company, which was a a year and a half after uh, because he had to work out his obligations. I had a consultancy for a moment in time until I could set up the new company. And just as an aside to that, the consultancy was, I thought one of the reasons they weren't like fighting to keep me there is I just turned 50. So I guess in the music business, I was a dinosaur. So yeah. I, can, I, I formed a consulting company called Dinosaur Consultants. <laughs> and the, the subtitle was Dinosaur Consultants. We're not extinct yet. Mother, you can fill in the blank. And that was my logo. <laughs> um, it was interesting because I did get a call from the Museum of Natural History wanting to know if they could interview me and to see, well, how does a dinosaur consultant consult about dinosaurs? I said, <laughs> I think you got the wrong guy. So Richard got out of That's his so situation and he and I, along with his brother Garson, who was the head of marketing at Rhino, formed Shout Factory 14 years ago. The idea was to emulate the core competencies that we had at Rhino, which was basically at the time repackaging, repositioning iconic content, putting it together into interesting ways to present you know, to the consumer, whether it was in a compilation or whether it was the same show, you know, if it was a TV show, it was still the full season of the TV show, but we did interviews like you're doing with me. I do it with the creative people that were part of the show so that there was added extras. And that was 14 years ago. It's become very successful. Is the main part of your business iconic? It, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the main parts. Uh-huh. I mean, as the world changes very rapidly, if you want to stay relevant, you have to change along with it. So as the years have passed, we've morphed more into a production company as well as, you know, releasing content, Content. uh, intellectual property, Mm -hmm. whether it's in digital form, if we get the digital rights or physical or both. But I have to go and we have to go and license that from the IP holder. We have also now moved into a situation where we're developing our own IP because that becomes an asset of the company and we have more control over what we do with it. So... That's knocking wood out there. We were fortunate enough to acquire an IP that we were involved in way back in the Rhino days called Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. We had had a, a, a relationship with them way back to the Rhino days. They liked the relationship with the three of us, the three principals. And by the way, we have a great bunch of people that work with us at Shout, many of which came from Rhino. So they said, you know, when our deal's up, we'd love to move our deal over to you. Okay, great. So we moved the deal over to us, and we always wanted to do new episodes. And the owner of the IP, a gentleman by the name of Jim Mallon, who controlled it and created it out of Minneapolis, just really had no desire to do it. He was just happy re-releasing the old stuff, getting checks, and going on with his new career. He was studying to be a therapist. And lo and behold, one day he called us basically and said, I've gotten my license. That's what I want to do. Are you still interested in buying the IP? I'm willing to negotiate to sell it to you. So we worked out a deal. We got it. And then, you know, sometimes not having enough knowledge or thinking things through to the end can be a asset and a benefit. So what we hadn't thought of was we wanted to now do new new episodes, which Jim never really or didn't want to do at this point in his career. So we said, okay, now let's go do three episodes. And we did a budget, and we didn't like the numbers, so we had somebody else do a budget. We still didn't <laughs> like the numbers, and we realized 
to do three episodes was going to be well over a million dollars an episode because there are costs that you have to do to build the puppets. If you know the show, Mm -hmm. build the sets. Uh, there are ramp up things that if you have more shows, you amortize over those shows. The fixed when you cost, have, yeah, right, right? But when yeah. you have three shows, the fixed costs can kill you. So we thought about this and we said, well, we're not ready to put another three million. Uh, we'll put in, you know, maybe maybe a million. What can? How can we raise the other million? Who can we go to? And there was this thing that we heard about, we knew about, called Kickstarter. So we said, let's do a Kickstarter Brilliant. campaign. Let's see if we can raise $2 million on Kickstarter. So we, you have 30 days to raise your goal. If you don't raise your goal in 30 days, you get nothing. If you hit your goal, you can keep increasing the goal and getting what you get at the end of 30 days. Well, the knock on wood thing was at the end of 30 days, much to our just delight, satisfaction, we raised, broke the record, we raised $6.5 million. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It's yeah, not crazy. What it's incentive? What, what did it's people wonderful. get? God bless America. What did people... <laughs> you saw great PR, though, yeah. because there was this latent love of that show yes. that you stimulated. Well, well we, and, had, yeah. we had over 52 or 54,000 people donated. You know, on a low end, you know, $25 to a high end of $25,000. What did they get in exchange for their donation? At different levels, they get different Like t-shirts uh, or? It's beyond. It's a, you get an advanced copy of the show. You get to meet the cast. You get to – you give more, you get more. Oh, okay? that's so cool. And it worked really well. And, you know, now we have a direct relationship with those 50,000-plus fans who have become sort of our, you know, street team, if you will. Right. Uh-huh. You know, so we, with with 6.5 million after cost, what was that? We were able to produce 14 episodes. That's living now, the American dream. It, that's why I saluted that flag behind you. It is the American wow. dream. You know, so we took the 14 episodes uh, as we were producing, we went out to sell the show or license the show. And we were fortunate enough to find an acceptable home and a wonderful relationship with Netflix. So the 14 new episodes, along with some of the classic mm-hmm. uh, episodes, of which there were 197, I believe, are, you know, some of those classic episodes and the 14 new episodes are all available currently on Netflix. So those of you listening out there that have your <laughs> Netflix account, please be sure to go. That's to great. And they featured it on the front page, I've noticed. They do. Well, you know, it's, yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. It's cool. They do. And it was very, it was very interesting in doing the refresh, if you will, or I guess the technical term is reboot of, yeah. of MST, MST3K was, you know, we had to do some new things. Of course, it's a newer, younger cast, you know, with a storyline that ties them to the older cast. That's great. But we realized as we were doing the campaign, how many celebrities like love this show. So we said, you know, maybe we could write in cameos. So if you go and watch the episodes, you could see uh, Jerry Seinfeld is in a cameo <laughs> and Neil Patrick Harris is in one. Uh, we wanted Pat Oswalt and he was a big fan, but he said no. However, he would do a recurring role <laughs> as a co-star to which we said, how can we, like, refuse? You're on. So he's got a recurring role. Oh, it's wow. just really been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And now they're taking the show out live. Oh, they yeah. have a live version that just uh, just started going around the country. And, you know, there's so much more that we can do with it. The one thing that was a thread that ran through, I think, whatever I've done, but definitely what happened at Rhino and now definitely at Shout Factory, it has to be something that you love, too. Now, there's three partners here. We don't all love the same thing, but there has to be a passion that at least one of us has. And usually because we're good partners, we've been together for 
30 some odd years as partners, there's usually a, th- a thread that all yeah. three of us like. I noticed Dick Cavett is another, another pursuit of yours. Dick is great. Again, this comes from the passion. You know, we knew the show and we got to know Dick. And Dick's a fascinating character, okay? And we've had this nice relationship going for several years now. We talk all the time. You know, he comes up with ideas that we'll listen to, whether we can mm-hmm. execute or not, who knows? And that's how that relationship went. And then Dick would talk to other people. The other thing that we found is it's something that's played forward, you know, especially in the creative community. If I'm good to you, Dick Cavett, you're going to tell your friend. And then all of a sudden that one. And actually, I have to go back one before Dick Cavett because the one that told Dick that we were like good people to work with and he'd have fun is somebody we've had a long relationship with. And that's Mel Brooks. And Mel is phenomenal. (laughs) He's so funny. Just amazing human beings to deal with and so funny. Uh And, you know, we had a relationship back to Rhino and then we were doing some new things with Mel and Mel and and Dick are very close. They've done many shows together, including uh, personal appearances together. Mm -hmm. So Mel told Dick, these are, you know, and it just keeps playing forward. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's just, again, it's something we're passionate about. And not everything we're passionate about works Mm -hmm. from a commercial level, but that's okay too because we have the luxury, if you will, that everything doesn't have to work, but at least it's something that we believe in and we're going to give it the ultimate try, if you will. And, you know, the one that quickly comes to mind that was somewhat of a heartbreaker that wasn't as successful as it was, was the Lenny Bruce box set, the definitive Lenny Bruce. Uh, And that was just something that Richard and I were just huge, huge Lenny Bruce fans. And we started this back at Rhino and couldn't finish it. And when it finally came out after 13 years, we almost were going to have a bar mitzvah for it. That's how, <laughs> seriously, we were just like, like, can you believe it took 13 years? And, it, you know, it, it did well, but it wasn't as successful as we would have liked. Is music still a part of what you're doing? Music, unfortunately, is not as big a part as it was before. And that's because of what has occurred and the technological change in music. I mean, the need to have a label that does great compilations doesn't exist anymore because of of iTunes. I mean, now you have other people curating great compilations and you go and you just punch it in. You have the compilation. You don't need me to do it. And in the past, when we were doing compilations and definitive sets, sometimes it was difficult to get all the songs licensed because, you know, there was a, not going to name names, but there was one group that insisted no matter what, even if it broke up the continuity of the set, that if their song was included, they had to be side one, cut one, the first cut. Okay, and then there was other groups that said, you can't use my song if you're going to, even though it makes sense maybe or you have a a reason for it, my song can't be on the same package as the song from so-and-so. They're just beneath me. Well, that makes it difficult. On Apple, you don't have that problem except our iTunes. You don't have that problem unless that artist is not on iTunes, but you can find other ways to do it. So it diminished that need for that. And there was also the change in consumer consumption of music, and it became back to, for lack of a better word, it's a singles business now. I just, I want to hear what I want, when I want it, and you don't tell me. What about from an experiential side? What do you think of all these festivals? And That's not something I can monetize. I mean, maybe on the DVD side, but sales on live music concerts have like fallen rapidly. Again, YouTube, you can just go on YouTube and probably find anything you want or enough. Um, As far as the the experience of going to live concerts or going to festivals, I don't think that'll ever end. I think, you know, I personally, my wife and I pick one new festival a year that we go to. I mean, we, we pick at least one and we go to it. 
because we like the experience. We like we go for the music. We like the experience of the people. It's now become people food, and you know it's it's it's, it's a such happening. a big yes. to do now. Uh, I want to go back, if I may. <laughs> Jimmy Iovine was interviewed by Howard, and he used an expression that you used, and that's the expression to be of service. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your point of view on I, that. For me, the, the of service part is something that I think you need to develop. You you have it in you. And you know what really brought it out in me, quite honestly, was having it performed on me by somebody, okay? And then you say, whoa, you know, this is something I need to – I need to focus on too. You know, my getting into the music business as much as I wanted to, for me, it wasn't I want to, therefore I am. There was just a series of events, two important events, if I can expand on them. One was when I was in college at USC undergraduate, I was a journalism major and I became at a necessity, the food critic and the music critic. And the necessity part was I wanted to be social and date, and I had no money, <laughs> and my parents <laughs> had less than no money. So by being the music editor, I'd get tickets to go, at the very least, to the Troubadour once a week to see the new act that was coming. And as the food editor, I'd get a free meal. So if I coupled them together on the same night, <laughs> I was like so a really smart. cool so guy. savvy. Savvy yeah, guy. Yeah, it, it was pretty hard to explain why I was driving that. a 58 Nash Rambler, but <laughs> I managed to come up with an excuse on that. But Sure, it was chic, though. It was very chic because yeah. the front seats went all the way back. Uh, <laughs> so that was a catalyst. So I'm working there. And then one day, I fortuitously and, – and, you know, again, a lot of it is just – what happens when it happens and just you may not realize it at the moment but that's that's the opportunity i had advanced to becoming the music editor and i gave this album to be reviewed to a gentleman and if he's listening out there i would love for you to get back in contact with me cuz i owe my career to you mike mitchell wherever you are <laughs> i gave the album carol king's tapestry to mike mitchell and fortunately mike hated this album Okay, to me, one of the greatest albums ever of all recorded. Time, okay, yeah. but is at least six cuts on that album. It. I know every. And he wrote a terrible review on the album, and I get a call the next day from the quote unquote college. Well, no, it's the college rep for A and M Records. Steve Gross, who was the rep, said, "How dare you do this? I'm cutting you off. You're never getting another record from A and M Records." I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, Steve. One, I happen to agree with you. I think it's a great album, but." You know, I also agree in freedom of the press, and he has a right to say whatever he wants to say. He said, I don't care. I'm just now exercising my right. You're not getting any more out. And I thought for a second, and sometimes I just spew things out because they just come out. And I said, well, I went to Fairfax High School here in Los Angeles. And I don't know if you realize that the A and A&M Herb Alpert, he went to Fairfax High School too. And I'm calling him on Monday. And sure enough, I called his office on Monday, and I got this wonderful receptionist. And by the way, anybody listening out there, don't ever underestimate the importance of assistance and people below totally. the person mm -hmm. that you're trying Amen. to get. They can be they can be the the reason or the uh, the good fortune that you may receive. And I got a very nice assistant who said, I, you know, I, I hear your your issue. I don't think this is something that Mr. Alpert needs to deal with. <laughs> you need to talk to Lance Freed, who is the head of the college promotion department. So she transfers me to Lance Freed. 
And for music buffs out there, yes, he is related. He is the son of Alan Freed, Mm -hmm. who is considered the godfather, if you will, of rock and roll. Who Just look him up and you'll understand why. I can't believe you remember all these people's names. I know. It's it's so beautiful that you do. But the the history is important. I love it. So anyway, so Lance gets on the phone and he says, Bob, don't worry. Steve is graduating, and we're in the midst of hiring a new college rep. I heard the word hiring, and that's all I fixated on. <laughs> now and you're going to have a job in the restaurant. He said, yeah, we pay you know, a nominal amount, and we give you a bunch of records, and they go and service all the college. I said, I want that job. He said, well, we're almost done interviewing. You come in tomorrow, conduct oh. an interview, and if you get it, you get it. And I came in, and I just like, begged, you know, and I got it. And that's how I got in the record business. But now when I graduated – I didn't get hired, and I couldn't believe it. I was—I did a great job. Now what do I do? So now I'm sitting around my apartment moping. What am I, what's my next step? And my wife walks in, at that time my girlfriend, walks in the room and hurls the yellow pages at me and says, start calling record companies and asking for jobs. I said, that's not how it's done. you got to write a letter. You gotta. She goes, if you want me to stay with you tonight, You'll make a call. So, okay, just to humor her. So the first <laughs> label in the yellow pages would be ABC Dunhill Records because it was A, B, C, and a D. So they're the first and I call and I was a journalism major. So I asked for the PR department. I get this guy on, Corb Donahue. And Corb says to me, you know, I've got nothing here, but I do know that there's something available at Blue Thumb Records. He said, here's the guy you call, Sal Licata. I cannot recommend you because I don't know you from Adam, but you sound like you're sincere about this. So give him a call and see if he can get a job. So I called Sal Licata. I got an interview. I then got hired as my first full-time job as head of publicity for Blue Thumb Records, which was one of the great independent record labels at the time, and a great learning experience for me because it was small, so I got to learn various other aspects. Oh, so wow. all that was wow. great. Tenacious. And that, but, and, but it's not that – it's just – Seizing an opportunity that you wouldn't know is an opportunity. You know, the guy telling me that I'm not getting any more records, I didn't look at it as an opportunity. At first, I looked at it as an insult. It turned into an opportunity. So getting back to of service, a long-winded answer, I realized how fortunate I was that people like Corb Donahue, who didn't even know me, were of service. So I have Mm -hmm. committed, made a commitment that I still adhere to. I'm one short this year, but I'll get it. I've got six months to go. Because I was somebody that he didn't know and he at least reached out and listened to me and made a suggestion or whatever, I make sure that twice a year I will respond to somebody, whether it's via a letter they send me or I run into the street, not somebody that, you know, my wife says, oh, Rebecca's son wants to get into the music business. Can you talk to him? Of course, I'll talk to your son. But I know you and that's one of the reasons. I want to talk to somebody that I have no connection with whatsoever. I like to scare people into doing things, but not, you know, they (laughs) think it's scary. It's like I will tell her or I tell these people that, you know, my time is valuable too. So I don't do this for nothing. Mm. You will have to pay me for this. Oh, you know, my hourly rate, you can't afford. Okay. But if you make a commitment, you don't have to sign a contract, but look me in the eye and make a commitment that when you succeed, and whatever you succeed, you will sort of play it forward to and do something like this to people. That's what I'm happy about. Yeah. Pretty fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, and let's get back to A&M Records. Right. Here it is now. I, we start Shout Factory. And I get a call from Shep. And he says, uh, you're coming over this year? I go, yeah. He goes, Jerry Moss. That would be the M in A&M. 
He goes, Moss wants to meet with you and talk to you. He has a, an opportunity for you. Said, okay, I'm happy to meet with you. He's Jerry. a lovely man. He's a lovely, lovely, lovely person. Yeah, so lovely I, I meet for lunch with Jerry and with Shep. And Jerry says to me, you know, due to a lot of fortuitous circumstances, uh, Herb Alpert got his entire catalog back. The whole Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass and all the Herb Alpert stuff. He and I now control. We got it back. And we'd like you to release it and take care of the catalog. And I said, Jerry, I appreciate that that offer. I'd love to. But we're just a startup company. And, you know, what you're going to require and deserve for an advance, it's just not going to be doable at this point in your career. But I do thank you. He goes, Bob, I remember I didn't hire you. You always throw that in my face. So I'm going to make up for it. Jerry and I don't need that money right now. We're going to let you manage the catalog and we're going to be partners on it. And you just pay us and you do the right thing and we're done. And we shook hands on it. We eventually had a little piece of paper. And for 12 years, we managed that catalog. And it was great. So, again, it's just things happen because they're meant to happen. You are not a guy that walks around and says, look at my level of success and look what I've done. You're a humble, nice, open, honorable guy. You don't put yourself in in that look at me. You put the artist and the talent in that spot and let the sun shine down on them. They should be. And that's why you've had the loyalty and the career that you've had, in my opinion. Thank you. You're very optimistic. Life is way too short. Yeah. Okay. And as I've gotten older, it's gotten shorter. And sure, there are times I get down in the dumps and there are times I'm not this optimistic, but it's it's far less frequently, mm. far, far less frequently than when I'm optimistic. Really- and I tell people, if they ask, you know, what is the, what is the secret? And I said, there really is no secret. I mean, to me, it's balance, okay? I could have made a lot more Monopoly dollars if I would have sacrificed maybe family, uh, maybe health, maybe this or that. But balancing and having a lovely family, you know. When you look back, when did that choice very, become very, relevant? Very, very, early. My father was a degenerate gambler. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, the relationship between my mother and father, who stayed married till the end, was not the best. My father was one of the greatest teachers I think a, a child can have because he taught me what not to do in my life. I, I learned early on. I said, I'm not going to be that man. I'm not going to do that. And it wasn't a defiant. He had a habit, okay? And, 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 and they're very ugly habits. But I learned from them that that's not what I wanted to do. I wouldn't replicate those or I'll try hard not to replicate those. So that was that was the lesson. And that's when I realized it. The other thing, too, in talking about your personal life a little bit, is that you've been married forever, and you have a really good partner in your wife. I fortuitously met her uh, on my way to a uh, a social dance with a friend of mine. And I'm, a, uh, believe it or not, I was very insecure with women when I was around my friend, because at the end, he'd always get the girl. You know, I was like the wingman. <laughs> so we went for, for dinner one night, and there was a clothing store attached to this dinner place in Santa Monica. And he was looking for a pair of men's clogs. Those were the rage then. So he went in, and this very beautiful young lady was waiting on us, you know, and, and she kind of laughed when he said, I'm looking for clogs. And, you know, we finished that, and we left the store, and we get in the car, and he turns to me and goes, she was quite cute, wasn't she? I said, yeah, she was okay. So I had a plan, a devious plan. <laughs> So the next day I returned to the store without him <laughs> and totally froze. Uh, she recognized me. We talked. She asked me what I was doing there. I said I was looking for a blouse for my – and I blurted out mother, which got her laughing too. So I, I don't know if I bought a blouse for my mother but with no intention of giving her. I just couldn't find it. And I left having not asked her or anything. And I'm sitting in the car going, am I an idiot? What's she going to say? No, she won't go out with me. Okay, next. Then I can move on. So I stalked her. 
I hate to say it. I just waited and waited until the store closed. And when she left, I pulled my car alongside of her, and I asked her uh, what she was doing. She said, I'm going home. What about you? I said, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Do you want to join? She actually said yes. And actually, she didn't get in the car with me, but she followed me. She claims that the reason she didn't feel threatened <laughs> was she looked on my back seat, and in my back seat were my clothes neatly folded from the wash, which thank God my mother had done for me and neatly folded because <laughs> I would have just thrown them in the car. And we just hit it off, and she told me, you know, you play this game of geography. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you da 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 She was going to UCLA, and she said that she had gone to a high school in the Valley here in, in L.A. called Birmingham. And I said, that's ah, funny. My last girlfriend went to Birmingham. And I had gone out with this girl for a while, but it just didn't happen. She chose somebody else. And she said, really? Who is that? Maybe I know her. I said, her name is Sue Shapiro. She goes, Sue Shapiro? She goes, that's my roommate here at UCLA and my best friend. <laughs> so I figured it was over. It was just <laughs> destined to be over. But Sue actually, the other Sue Shapiro stood up for me and told Sue that I was actually a nice person. And one thing led to another, and we just kept dating, and we lived together for three years, and now I've been happily married for 42 years. That's beautiful. So it's That's 45 great. years total. How old were you when you came to L.A.? 11 or 12. Wow. Sue is native California. Right. Sue is native. She um, looks like a native California yeah, blonde, she does. cute as a bug. She does. We had... Two sons raised them in the valley. One got married. Both have their own careers. One in the television industry as a development person. The other one started a company with a couple of its fraternity brothers at USC that's become very successful in the merch area. And uh, that's about it. Oh, then two grandchildren. It's not about <laughs> it. Uh, and the grandchildren, it's just great to relive things you've forgotten. Uh, you know, and I, like I forgot what it's like to see your kid take its first step or say its first word and, you know, just play with them and then give them back at the end of the day, <laughs> which uh, is not – it's definitely not overrated. It's kind of a nice thing. Was your dad around for you when you were younger or your, was your mom your stabilizing yeah, I, force? But basically, I was raised by my mom, my grandmother and my aunt mm. and my maternal grandfather to some degree. But my father was there on and off. I mean, he was out of town running, whatever. At the end, he was there. But again, he's, it was just, I didn't have a, a good, great father-son relationship growing up. You know, just to get back, like you were saying, you know, you, you had an upbringing, you had the father who it was, and you chose to look at everything as a lesson to, I am not going to do that. And a lot of people and a lot of kids actually take that stuff very personally. What was it in you that made you grasp the Simple goodness answer. in it? I have always been very passionate about life. To me, it's the greatest gift anybody can get, and I got it, okay? And no matter what my father did or who he was or my mother or anybody, if it wasn't for my mother and father, I wouldn't be sitting here doing this interview. So I have to thank him for something. Nice. So thanks, Dad. I do appreciate the fact that you found Mom and you decided to have a kid. Or maybe you didn't decide and I was a mistake, but thank you anyway. That's always been the impetus. So many people are fearful of decisions where it feels like you say, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? Let me just go give that a try. If you were to ask me what regrets I have in life, I would be hard-pressed to think of them. I know there are some, but I've sort of suppressed them or eliminated them. I, I like to look at the glass more than half full. I'd like to just look at everything being more positive. That's, you just got to make the best of what you yeah. got and, yeah. and keep pushing. And I do feel for those that can't do that or maybe life has not dealt them the, the, the hand and it's more difficult or maybe even impossible. 
I have been fortunate enough that it's not impossible. There's nothing that was not that overwhelming that it couldn't be overcome or compensated for to make a positive. And for those that you know don't have that luxury or, or, or have not had that, that hand dealt to them, I do feel for them. I really do. And I know there mm-hmm. are. Well, that goes to the uh, when life deals you lemons, you make lemonade out of it. <laughs> You know, and that's what you've done. I mean, you are a full-blown and, you know, at-your-heart entrepreneur. You've never had a job. Well, I've had a couple jobs. I've gotten fired from every one of them because I'm an (laughs) entrepreneur. Uh, And it's interesting because – And your kids are entrepreneurs. You know, your kids have really followed in your They are. I mean, to me, the thing about people ask me why – why did you do Shout Factory that late in life? You know, you know, late in life. You know, I was 53 when I did it. No, 51 or 52. Anyway, why? Because I never had the ability. I knew I had the entrepreneurial spirit in me. But as I said, I joined Rhino as a third partner. I didn't get it started. Getting married early in life, I felt an obligation looking back at how my father and mother struggled that it was important for me to be able to provide for my family. And to be an entrepreneur... You have to take chances, and a lot of times those chances don't pan out. And if you're single and independent, so you're not going to live in a one-bedroom, you'll go back and live with your parents, or you'll crash with a friend. Well, you can't do that when you're married. At least you shouldn't do that, I don't believe. Right. So I was always on the tail end of things. So when, you know, working with Shep was great, but he had started this company. Working at, at Rhino was great, but two other people had started the company. So having the opportunity, even though it was later in my life, of starting a company and giving it a shot. And by the way, if it didn't work, it would have been a minor setback and it wouldn't have impacted my family that much. So I said, okay, I got to try it. I want to be able to tick that off my bucket list. So that's why I did it. What else is on your bucket list? A lot more eating and traveling. I'm a, (laughs) thanks to (laughs) Chef, I'm an avowed foodie. (laughs) How do you balance? I mean, it sounds like you still very much enjoy um, working in this company that you've created. How do you balance that um, time to be able to do your traveling with still wanting to work and accomplish? Um, Well, technology has been a big boon to that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I literally, and I'm not saying my wife approves. But, you know, some things you can't can't approve of everything I do. I don't necessarily turn myself off totally on vacation, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that I'm walking around on my phone all the time or my iPad or whatever. But I'm able to stay in contact. I actually find it more beneficial if I can stay in contact and take care of certain things while I'm traveling. What I used to hate before the advent of, of all this technology that you could stay in touch is you'd take a vacation and you'd come back and there'd be a stack of things mm-hmm. to go through like this. And by the time you got through them, you're ready for another vacation. So I take care of a lot of the mundane things I definitely take care of. And if, if issues arise, I'm available. And it's it's happened before where I've had to turn to my wife and say, you know, today you can go on this thing. There's a crisis that's going on. I have to deal with it. So that's how that balance. And she's been very good about that. When you take stock of who you are and where you are in your life now, is there anything that you would have done different? I don't know. I'm happy with what I've done, so I don't know what I'd want to do differently. You know, would I have wanted to be a better person? Yeah, there's certain things in my life I would have wanted to have been better at or a better person towards. But I think all in all, I'm very, very happy with where I am and who I am. I think that this has been unbelievable. Thank you you for sharing your time with us. Anytime. Next time, you're going to meet a man whose life story is so amazing that Hollywood made a movie about him. 
He was a high school football player who, at the age of 16, caught the attention of the NFL until he was accused of a crime he did not commit. He lost his scholarship, went to jail for 10 years, and was prevented from playing pro football. When he got out of jail, he fought to prove his innocence by taking on the system of justice that failed him. He was determined to get his life and his dignity back and pursue his dream of playing in the NFL. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Brian Banks for one of the most incredibly powerful life stories you will ever hear on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 